Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. Today we're continuing our series, Church in the Wild. A little bit of a strange title, uh, but it's a chapter by chapter study on the books of First and Second Peter. Today we're in our second week and it, we're gonna start in verse one of chapter two. So get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you've had a taste of the Lord's kindness. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the meditation or mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. Today, we refuse to go through the motions of just another Sunday, but today we lean in with hopeful expectation that your spirit is gonna illuminate the scripture right before our eyes. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the spirit is revealing to your church. Lord, wash us in the word. Be strong in my weakness. I need you today. It's in Christ's name we pray. And everybody said, amen. So the background here of the book of 1 Peter is that it is written by none other than Peter himself, who's that bold, zealous, boisterous disciple that we all love. One of the main reasons I love reading 1 and 2 Peter is because I'm often reminded of Peter's imperfections and that God uses imperfect people to bring about his perfect will and plan. Anybody grateful today that God can use imperfect people, right? Uh, One of the great lies of the enemy is that if you've ever messed up too bad or you've sinned too great, you've disqualified yourself and God cannot use you. But the truth is, if God required perfection to be used of him, this stage would be empty. The the volunteer booths, they would all be empty. Uh, But today, thanks be to God in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. First Peter is written to Jewish and Gentile Christians who've been scattered throughout Asia Minor. And the important backdrop that you understand is that they are beginning to face severe, merciless persecution at the hand of a demon-possessed Roman emperor by the name of Nero. Nero was possessed many times over with evil spirits, and he literally set out to extinguish Christianity from the face of the earth, let alone the Roman Empire. He savagely and violently hunted down Christians, martyring them in the tens of thousands. Peter is writing to those Christians under these circumstances, and the overarching message of First and Second Peter is this. In the midst of persecution, 
stay strong, remain steadfast. Do not grow weary in well-doing. Don't focus on the persecution. Focus on Christ, your savior, and set your mind on eternity. The other overarching theme of First Peter is we are called to live a holy life in a hostile world. Tell your neighbor, you're called to be holy. And again, just a recap from last week, when we hear holy, often we get intimidated and we feel like that's an insurmountable command to be holy, but to be holy does not mean to be perfect. To be holy means to be set apart, to be distinguished, to be different from the ideology and the ways of this world, all right? We're called to be holy. Now, one other reason that we called this series Church in the Wild is because in the fifth chapter of First Peter, he makes a bold statement as he writes to these persecuted saints. He says, I write to the church in Babylon. He's not talking about the geographic region of Mesopotamia. He's addressing the spirit of the age in which they lived. They were surrounded by darkness, perversion, and confusion. Peter was writing and he was saying a scared, confused, evil world needs a bold, holy, vibrant church. Now, I don't know if you're tracking with me already, but 2,000 years later, these words still transcend time and they're echoing true even today. It is unpopular for you to be a Christian now and likely in the years and decades to come, it will be more looked down upon and you will be persecuted for your faith. The scripture warned that in the last days, men will call good evil and evil good. Congratulations, you are living in the last days where we celebrate evil and we call good evil. So today you must count the cost of following Jesus. Consumer Christianity weekend visitation is no longer going to be sufficient. You have to make up your mind what you believe and why you believe it and count the cost. And are you really ready and willing to follow Jesus even in the face of persecution and adversity? Because trials will come. Trials will come. That's the backdrop. The first major point of today's message is found in verse one. And it is simply this. Jesus did more than forgive you. Jesus did more than forgive you. Tell your neighbor, the one you've been ignoring, say, he did more. He more. You know, often when we think of the gospel and we think of church and the cross, we think immediately about the forgiveness of sin, that the blood of Jesus was shed to take away the sin of the world and to grant us access eternally into the presence of the Father. And you would be exactly right. But sadly, too many of us, we stop there. We think that that's all the cross was about. But I want you to know that the cross was about a lot more than just forgiving your sin. The cross was about a lot more than just getting you to heaven. The cross is about giving you dominion and victory in this life right here and right now. Listen, if all Jesus did were to save us from our sin, thanks be to God, that would be more than enough. But he did not stop there. He wants you to not only be forgiven, but he wants you to be free. Tell your other neighbors, say, he wants you to be free. Jesus came to give you victory over sin 
on the cross. He did more than atone for our sins. He made a way for us to walk in victory. I want you to think back about verse one, and I want to read it one more time. Peter says to a persecuted church, instead of coddling them and saying, hey, I'm real sorry about your circumstances. Nero's a jerk. I hate him. Like instead of all that focusing on their trouble, he immediately starts talking to them and challenging them to continue to live a holy life in a hostile world. Listen to what he says again in verse one. So get rid of all evil behavior, be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Get rid of this evil thinking and this evil behavior. This, my friends, is a call to action. Peter is inviting you to be a participant in your sanctification. Sanctification is the fancy theological term for becoming more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. He's inviting you to a call to action, to set aside evil thinking, evil behavior, and to rid it from your life. The actual Greek words and terminology Peter uses is identical to that of discarding a filthy garment or a stained robe. We are to take off this evil thinking and evil way of living, and we are to remove it, discard it from our body. Do you realize that before sin is ever manifest in your body, it is first conceived in your mind? People don't just one day do crazy, egregious things out of the blue. Long before you ever acted on that affair, long before you ever acted on that embezzlement, long before you ever did that shady business deal, you first imagined yourself doing it. Sin originates in the mind. And before we ever act on it, we first imagine ourselves doing it time and time again. Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, the persecution is real, but remember to stay holy in a hostile world and discard every evil thought that enters into your mind. You and I cannot control every fleeting temptation that comes our way, but we can control what we meditate on. We do have power over what we dwell on and replay in our life. Second Corinthians chapter 10 says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down every imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The battlefield for your mind and for your soul begins in your mind. Cast down those evil thoughts and bad behaviors. This is a call to action. I also want to show you something that is very important. When I was a new Christian, I literally thought that the moment I gave my life to Christ, that my life was going to be perfect, 75 and sunny for the rest of my life, that I would never sin again. I'd be kind of walking on water. You know, I'd be good. Anybody else have unrealistic expectations when you first came to Christ? Like three of you. Okay. The rest of you are lying. Okay. <laughs> I forgive you though. Um, but no, in all seriousness, right? Like we think that the moment we stand in a service, we publicly confess Christ, that instantly our life is going to be perfect. But the reality is even the saints fall sometimes. And we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And though we have been forgiven of our sin, covered by the blood of Jesus, justified by faith, the moment we believed and trusted in him, the truth is there's still a sin nature at war in our flesh 
on this life. In fact, Galatians 5 and 6, speaking to the church at Galatia, tells you that every day of your life as a Christian, you're in a battle. And you've got to make up your mind today, who are you going to serve? Are you going to let your flesh reign and do whatever sinful impulses you feel inclined to do? Or are you going to yield to the Holy Spirit and live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to God? Yes, you've been saved. Yes, you've been forgiven. But there's still a war with your flesh inside. And you've got to make up your mind today. Who am I going to serve? But I've come with good news this morning to tell you the same message Peter told the scattered believers. You are able through his spirit to discard every evil thought, every evil imagination, and every evil behavior to live a life that is glorifying to God. And though as a Christian, you will never be sinless and perfect, you can live a life free from the bondage of sin and its life-controlling habitual reign over your life. I just wish I get somebody that would give the Lord praise today if you're thankful that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. I need you to understand today, there is a difference between a Christian who makes a mistake and a Christian who lives a lifestyle of deliberate, willful sin. There's a difference. Even the saints fall sometimes. All of us, except for Christ, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the scripture gives an account for you as a believer what to do when you sin. Repent and turn to God and follow him closer than before. But the scripture does not make an excuse for a lifestyle of deliberate sin where sin continues to reign in your mortal body. You have to grow and mature as a Christian to realize, yes, you've been forgiven, but now it's time to walk in victory. And on that cross, he didn't just die to take away your sin. He died to break sin's power over your life. Come on, somebody, and give him praise if you're thankful. Romans chapter six, verse 10 says this, when he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. And so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? He literally said, when I died on the cross, I broke the power of sin over your life. Because see, we don't get it. Before Christ, sin was our master. Sin was our Lord. Sin reigned over us. It dictated to us our decisions, our way of life. We were, a, we were captive to our fleshly impulses and carnal appetites. But he who the Son sets free is truly free indeed. And as a Christian, though you may not be perfect and sinless, you are free from sin's reign over your life. And that was afforded to you by the blood of Jesus and the power of the cross. Church, this is powerful. What what Peter is saying to those early Christians is the same thing the Spirit is saying to you. As a born-again Christian, you are no longer obligated to live a life under the lordship of this world and sin. Don't let it reign in your mortal body any longer. As a Christian, you're no longer obligated to sin. Before Christ, you were obligated to sin. It's who you were. It's what you did. You and sin were synonymous. It was one and the same. But now you're a new creation. You're not under its dominion anymore. 
Now as a Christian, if you sin, it's not because you had to, it's because you want to. Oh, I'm preaching to you today. You see, the Bible gives a promise to every born again Christian that in the time of temptation, God will always make a way of escape for you. That's a promise he doesn't make to the world. That promise is only afforded to us who are born again, purchased by the blood of Jesus. There is no temptation taken you, but that which is common to man. And in the face of trials and temptation, he always gives you a way out. Why does he give you a way out? Because you're free. It's not your master anymore. So Peter is saying, use your freedom to serve him and obey him, not to go back into sin. It's not about now I'm saved, so let's see how close to sin I can get and still make it to heaven. Romans 6, Paul says, shall we continue in this lifestyle of sin that grace may abound? He says, heaven forbid, how can we who have died to sin continue to live any longer there in it? We're called to die. Our relationship to sin changes at the cross. Romans 7, 5. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us and the law aroused these evil desires. But that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. But now we've been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. This is beautiful. Can I also just address like the obvious? I talk to so many people and they're like, why does God care so much about sin? Like, what's the big deal? Like, can he just like forgive it and let's, let's just move on? Well, church, what you have to understand is that sin is a far bigger deal than you and I think it is. We know it's wrong. We just don't know how wrong it actually is. And actually the reason God has a wrath and an anger that is righteous towards sin is because sin is warring against your soul and sin is killing you. Sin is a insidious disease that is undoing his perfect creation. And I've used this example before. Here it is again. Imagine a loving parent and a child is diagnosed with a terminal illness. That parent wouldn't be like, well, you know, that illness, you know, it's not that bad. You know what I mean? Just play with it on the weekend. It's all right. No, no. The parent would have a righteous indignation, a wrath, a hatred towards that sin. Why? Because it is killing their child. It's the undoing of their perfect loved one. God loves sin because it's killing you. And he loves you. The wages of sin is death. Let us run from sin and turn to God. One of the most beautiful messianic prophecies of Christ, the Messiah, is found in Isaiah 61. It's echoed again in Luke 4. And I want you to listen to why he came. Luke 4:18. This is a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He said, I came to liberate the captives, to set those who are afflicted free. 
He didn't come just to save you, but to set you free, to walk in victory. Why does Peter say this to the persecuted church? Because if they look like the world, talk like the world, live by the same ideology and perspective of the world, their light will grow dim until it eventually is darkness. But if they will live a life that is consecrated, a life that is set apart, a life that is distinguished, a life that brings honor to God, it begins to shine as a brilliant light into the darkness. God is calling us to be a light in the city of Charlotte, not perfect, but humble and genuine in our pursuit of Christ, repenting and trusting trusting in him for our salvation and victory. Galatians 5.24, to those who belong to Christ, they have nailed their passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and have crucified them there. Did you read that? Those who belong to Christ have crucified their passions to the cross. By the way, This is in Galatians. It's not talking about a one-time thing. It's not like, well, you know, one time I resisted temptation, so I'm doing good. This is a continual dying to the flesh and the carnal impulses. This is a daily sacrifice, a daily offering. And if I could just be totally honest with you, we're called to crucify our flesh. We're called to resist temptation. And one thing, church, that truly has helped me in walking a life. And listen, I'm not the man I want to be, but I'm definitely not the man I used to be. And it's his spirit at work inside of me. But there's a perspective that he gave me that that has helped me in in a lot of areas of my life be victorious. And I want to share it with you. It's at the crossroads of temptation. I no longer look at it as a moral obligation, my Christian duty to resist. No, no, no. Now I look at temptation as an opportunity to worship my God because I give up the things I love for the God I love even more. My my death to flesh, my resisting temptation is my act of worship that says, no, I love you more than I love me and I love you more than this momentary joy or pleasure that's fleeting. The world says you do your life your way. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Can I be honest? Sometimes um, in this journey, we begin, like the enemy is really good at accusing us, right? Like when we gave our life to Christ and we still struggle with sin afterwards, sometimes we question and doubt our salvation, I don't know about you, but when I was a young Christian, like I, like the enemy convinced me, like I wasn't really saved. My decision for Christ wasn't really genuine because after all, a real Christian wouldn't have said that. A real Christian wouldn't have done that. Has anybody ever felt that way before? Yeah, where he tries to accuse you and convince you that maybe you're not really saved. Maybe you're not really changed. Well, let me remind you of something profound. The struggle with sin in your life is the evidence that you are a born again Christian. I didn't stutter. I said, the struggle is the evidence. Tell your neighbor, say the struggle is my evidence. You know why? You know why? Because before Christ, there was no struggle. Before Christ, you jumped headfirst into sin. You, You didn't feel convicted. You didn't feel a longing to change. 
You just, that's who you were. But now there is a new life, a new spirit inside of you. You've been born again. That tension that you experience with sin and temptation, that tension to do right, to live right, to live a life that pleases God, that's the evidence that there's a new spirit at work within you and God is sanctifying you by his spirit because before Christ, there was no struggle. Today, there's a tension because God is at work inside of you. But hear me, just because you struggle, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but it's also not an excuse to just justify your sin and say, well, I'll always be imperfect. No, that struggle is there because Christ is drawing you more and more to himself, more and more to his likeness. Every day he wants you to be just a little bit more like him than you were the day before. It's not legalism, it's love and pursuit and following him. And can I just say one more thing to you? The gospel is not about behavior modification. It's not about like, stop smoking, drinking, and sleeping around. You know, the church, that's what we say all the time. Stop smoking, drinking, and sleeping. Okay, well, all that's true, but here's the thing. We just read it a moment ago. If you focus on the law, the law provokes you to sin even more. I have a two-year-old. I say, hey, do not touch that. He just runs over. I mean, just as fast as he can, just to like touch it and then look at me. So like Christine and I now, we've like advanced in parenting a little bit. And so now like the thing we don't want him to do, we just distract him. We're like, oh, look over here. Look how awesome. And instead of saying, stop this, this, and this, what the church needs to say is, look how beautiful Jesus is. Look at his mercy. Look at his kindness. Look at his grace. Look at his mercy. Fall in love with Jesus, because here's the thing. The more you become like Jesus, the more you separate from the old life, and the more you become like him, and the things of old fall off of your life. We're called to crucify the flesh. Really fast, how do you, how do you crucify the flesh? Just super fast, I want to touch on this. It's not by trying harder it's not by creating new rules or behavior modification, like I mentioned. It's not even promising to God, I'll never do it again, because we all know how that worked out. <laughs> Crucifying the flesh is relying on his spirit to change you. And practically, it plays itself out in three ways. You ready? I would encourage you to write this down. Number one, crucifying the flesh looks like this. Confess your sin to the Lord and to other mature Christians. Scripture says we must confess our sin to the Lord and to one another. By the way, while I'm here, at this church, men disciple men and women disciple women. You don't need to be discipling a young lady. Don't let me hear about that. We will shut that down fast. Always happened before. Oh, I'm called to disciple her. Oh, no, you not. I'm about to set you out in the police car with Officer Chris if you don't watch out. <laughs> oh, Pastor T said I could do it. No, I didn't. I'm telling you right now, put it on the record. How do I crucify my flesh? I confess my sin to the Lord and I confess my sin to other mature believers. You don't have to post it on social, okay? You don't have to make it your status. But to other believing people that are holding you accountable, you need to confess your sin. And by the way, stop just saying, Lord, I sinned. 
No, say what you did. There's power in confession. When sin comes out into the light, it loses its power and grip over you. And it's going to taste like poison coming out of your mouth to say, Lord, I did this. Say it to him, what you did. Sin begins to lose its power. What does it look like to crucify my flesh? Starts with confession. Number two, it means to turn your back on sin. That's what Peter is saying in verse one. He said, hey, turn your back on these evil thoughts and evil behaviors. Turn your back on them. What does that mean? That means that guy's contact that you know doesn't belong in your phone, delete it. Today's altar call. Instead of coming forward, delete the contact. Unfollow her on the gram. You don't need to be looking at that anyway. I'm in your driveway now. I'm like, hey, somebody, somebody right now, listen, somebody right now is like, I hate this church. I'm never coming back. Well, hey, you may never come back, but at least you heard the truth while you were here. You know, and we love you. We hope you come back. All right. How do I crucify the flesh? I confess my sin to the Lord and to one another. And I say what it is, the deep, dark, ugly, I say it because it loses its power. Number two, I turn my back on sin. You can't flirt with it. Turn your back on it and turn your face towards God, okay? And number three, we're called to then trust in the Lord for our salvation and sanctification. We trust in the Lord for a new heart and a new appetite. I confess, I turn my back, and I trust on his strength to be perfect in my weakness. And some people are delivered in an instant, and some people are delivered over a lifetime, but either way, it is his spirit doing the sanctifying in us. And I may not be the man I am today, I wanna be, but I'm far from who I used to be, and it's his spirit at work within me. Three people golf clapping. You're right. I'm not preaching sinless perfection, but I am preaching you can be free from sin's reign over your life. You will always make mistakes, but you don't have to live a lifestyle of habitual sin. That was verse one. You think I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. All right, verse two, 1 Peter 2, 2. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. This is amazing. The second major point here is crave the word. Tell your neighbor, crave the word. When he says you should be like babies that crave for milk. He's not putting down the early church. He's not saying you're spiritual babies. Paul does that later to another church. But actually what he's saying is, he's saying you should crave God's word like a baby craves its milk. I don't know if you've ever had a baby. I got a little one and he's a little fatty with the Michelin rolls. That's what I prayed for. And he's the sweetest little guy. His name is Luca, sweetest little angel, until he's hungry. And then look out, he's coming for you, all right? And, and man, like he is relentless until he eats. He will make your life miserable till he eats. Peter says that's how you should be until you receive and consume the word of God. Some of y'all are acting a fool because you're spiritually hangry. Oh, I'm preaching. I'm preaching to you. <laughs> For those of you that may not know what hangry means, it's the combination of hungry and angry, okay? And if you go long enough without food, you start to get like a little imbalance here. You start to act crazy, being rude to people, doing stuff that's out of character. Well, the same is true spiritually. 
You haven't been in the word, you're going to start acting crazy. You start doing things that are out of character that you know you shouldn't be doing. That's Because you've got to be, you've got to nourish the word. You've got to consume the word of God. And can I be real with you? There have been seasons in my own life, even as a pastor, where I didn't want to read the Bible. <gasps> can I say that? I just said it. There have been times I didn't want to read it. So you know what I do? In those moments, in those seasons of my life, I say, Lord, help my unbelief and help me to love your word like I need to love your word. Help me to love prayer like I ought to love prayer. Help me to love your spirit and your presence like I know I ought to. That prayer of transparency is one he loves to answer. Be honest with God, he already knows it. But we should deeply desire the word of God. And by the way, like it's, it's super common for us to like start as a new Christian where we're on fire for the word, we're on fire for you know, prayer and all that stuff, but then over time, like it diminishes and grows cold. You ever felt that in your life? Of course you have, we all have. David the psalmist who slew Goliath, he wrote, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Amen. If David needed to pray that, you and I probably need to pray that. And there's no shame in praying that. Lord, restore that hunger. Restore that thirst for righteousness. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And just another quick thought on craving the word. Spiritual hunger is the opposite of physical hunger. Physically, the longer you go without eating, the hungrier you get. The longer I preach, the more miserable you become. <laughs> Somebody said amen in the back. I'm going to get you. All right, so... <laughs> But spiritual hunger is the exact opposite. Spiritual hunger is the longer I go without reading the word, the less I want to. The longer I go without praying, the less I want to pray. The longer I go without worship, the less I want to worship. The longer I go without church and the fellowship of the saints, the less I want to be in the church. That's why what started as, oh, I need to sleep in a couple weeks. We haven't seen you in six months and we almost forgot your name. Because it starts real innocent. But over time, it leaves you empty. So you know, what, you know what is also true? If you'll be in the word, you'll hunger for it. If you'll pray, you'll be hungry to pray again. If you'll be in his presence, you'll want to be in his presence again. The more you read it, the more you want it. So start reading. Start praying. People ask me, where's a good place to read the Bible? There's never a bad place to read the Bible. Okay, maybe Leviticus, but... Um, just kidding. By the way, there's no bad way to read the word. Like, let me just say this to you really fast. In our culture, we've kind of like lessened, like, like we've put this high value on, if I'm not in the closet by myself with like an oil lamp reading the Bible <laughs> in the King James, then it's not real <laughs> study time. I'm, I'm in your driveway now. I'm like, hey. But can I be honest with you? Consume the word however you need to consume the word. If it's through a podcast, make sure they're biblically sound and they're preaching the word, all right? But if, it's, if, if you need to get that app out and you just need to press play and let it read to you, some of y'all are audible learners. Stop being ashamed of that. Consume the word however you need to consume the word, but be in the word. Amen. Golf clap, it's telling you the truth. You have time for one more point? That was the right answer. <laughs> First Peter chapter two, verse four. 
you are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for a great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. This is super powerful. If you're taking notes, write, Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. I know today when we read that, it kind of like glances off of us and we're like, okay, great, he's the cornerstone. But like, you have to understand, 2,000 years ago, they built buildings differently than they do today. And the cornerstone was the ancient equivalent of the foundation of a building. How many of you know if the foundation is off base or off kilter, everything you build is gonna be flawed. But if the foundation is solid and secure and steadfast, that building can be a mighty fortress. When the scripture says Jesus is our cornerstone, it's saying he is the foundation of our faith upon which the apostles and the New Testament church were erected. But something even more profound is that the cornerstone was the single tool of measurement. It became the plumb line for every other stone that would be laid in the building. In other words, he is our example. He is our guide. How he loved the misfortunate, that's how we should love them. How he treated his enemy, that's how we should treat our enemies. Our life should be measured according to the chief cornerstone. And if you're already tracking with me, that means it is impossible to live like Jesus in your own power and in your own might and strength. Oh, but when you rely on his spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive in you. And he can help you to love the unlovable, to reach the unreachable and to live a life that is in alignment with his life. Again, you will never be perfect, but you can live a life that brings glory to Jesus Christ. By the way, what Peter is also saying here is that we are the living stones laid upon that foundation. That sounds real good and exciting. Like, ooh, I'm part of the temple. I'm part of the kingdom. Until you understand what that rock went through in the stone quarry. Because it may look pretty on the outside, but it didn't get that way effortlessly. There was chipping, chiseling. There was a violent process. There were some things that needed shaved off, cut off, changed, sanded down and transformed. It's the picture of sanctification in your life and mine. Every day you walk with Jesus. He's, he's, he's adjusting you. He's changing you, challenging you, shaping you more and more into his image and likeness. Anybody grateful for the process? You're thankful for a God who's changing and transforming. Don't miss this part in verse five. He says, not only, not only are you the living stones of his temple, but you are a holy priesthood, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, that you should show forth his praises, who's called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Tell your neighbors, say you're a priesthood. You have to understand this church. Please hear me in closing today. The New Testament church was not built on the talents of a few clergy ordained pastors. The New Testament church is built on the sacrifices of the saints. The ministry of the New Testament church was not reserved for a few Bible teachers and elders. 
No, the ministry is yours. Soul winning, disciple making, loving the hurting, binding up the brokenhearted, speaking God's word on time and in season to people in need. The ministry is yours. Ephesians 4 says the job of the pastor is to equip the saints for the working of the ministry. You are a royal priesthood. You're not a spectator. You're not sitting in row three until we make it to glory. God wants to use you right here and right now. And the same God that chose me is choosing you. The same God that chose Peter is choosing you. You're a royal priesthood. But you know what a priest did 2,000 years ago? They offered sacrifices. And so you too are called to offer sacrifices unto God, but not a bull and oxen, that'd be weird. Instead, Romans 12 says that you and I, the royal priesthood of God, we're called to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice before God that is holy and acceptable and pleasing unto Him. That means, that means, that you have to lay down your will for His. That means you have to lay down your dreams and your plans for His. I have to decrease that He may increase. And as I'm a living sacrifice, He's glorified in my life. That's what it means to be a royal priest following Jesus. And after all, He doesn't ask you to do something He didn't do Himself. Hebrews 10 says that our high priest offered himself on the altar of Calvary as a sacrifice that his blood may atone for the sins of the world. If you're in this place today, you're not right with God, I want you to pray with me right now. You're not gonna make it to heaven by being a good enough person. You're not gonna break free from the cycle of addiction and life controlling issues on your own. You need his spirit, but I've got good news. The same one that saves is the one who heals, sanctifies and delivers. Let's trust him today for freedom. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we repent of our sin. We confess our need of you. Right now, we ask you, Lord, to forgive us and wash us in the blood of Jesus. I pray that you would change our hearts and our appetites. Today, we confess our many sins to you. Empower us to turn our back to sin and trust in you. Give us faith that is beyond measure. Lord, we thank you for the cross of Calvary and the blood of Jesus and his death, burial and resurrection. Through Christ, our sins are forgiven, our stains washed white as snow. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. We give you our life, our past, present, and future. And we're thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless. Thank you.